Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, once again, welcome to Loving Liberty. Glad to have you with us and happy once again to connect up with my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, uh, how, how do we find you on this uh, apparently sunny Tuesday for you? Well, yeah, I'm very gratefully walking around in shorts and a T-shirt, taking advantage uh, of all the climate change that's been happening, and for once in a positive direction. (laughs) Well, maybe it was the right thing to uh, nominate uh, Greta Thunberg for the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) Has she actually been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize? She has actually been nominated. Not joking. Well, you just spoiled my day. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Cheerfully withdrawn, then. Um, Actually, I'm glad to catch up with you. Um, You know, weather concerns aside, uh, you have a marvelous post on your site, ericpetersautos.com, about uh, the dignity of risk. And and if you would, walk us through, uh, as I understand it, you wrote this kind of in response to an earlier column, which we'll also be discussing. Yeah, I I had a column about uh, this whole business of the government decreeing safety standards for cars. And one of my readers, who's a regular, he's a good guy and he meant well, uh, responded uh, that, well, he understands that uh, my concern about the government interposing itself between the the customer and the manufacturer when it comes to vehicles. But on the other hand, uh, there are all these motor vehicle fatalities every year. So many people are being killed. So uh, on balance, this may be a good thing. That was his position. And my response, which ended up being an entire column, was, no, it's a very bad thing when when the government uh, takes away from us as free men and women, as adults and not idiot children and not property, the right to weigh risks and uh, accept risks uh, in return for benefits uh, as we see them. And possibly, uh, you know, things may go wrong. There's there's a great line from the original Batman movie, the, the one with Christian Bale in it. Uh, where young Batman, he's a boy at this point, falls into the the cave where the bats are, and his father rescues him, and he's crying, and his father says, uh, "Bruce, why why do we fall down?" And 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 Bruce asks, shakes his head, he doesn't know why, and his father responds, "So that we can learn to get back up." Ooh. And that's what this is all about. Taking risks is part of becoming an adult. Uh, it's what differentiates a child uh, from an adult. You, you, know, you, take a, you, you, you take a risk, something good or bad happens, and you learn a lesson from that. If it's good, that's reinforcement. If it's bad, it's also reinforcement. You know, if, if, I, could when, back, if I could back that up with a, with a story from my own raising of my kids, um, there was a mm-hmm. time as my kids were starting to get more independent, and by that I mean they were starting to get into things where I was like, hey, you shouldn't be getting into that. And, and I was getting yep. after them one day, and my wife pulled me aside and wisely said, look, don't discourage the kids too much from from being able to think for themselves. And and she pointed to they they had some friends who um, were so coddled that these kids could not decide what to, to you know they'd have a couple of cereals in front of them and they'd have to look to their mom. I don't know which one to sure. choose because they were so used to somebody else doing it all for them, making all the decisions for them. Well, there's that, and another aspect of it is that risk is often associated with recklessness. That's something that I get accused of often. But I'll give you a good example that, that makes the counter-argument. Uh, almost all new cars now have not only anti-lock brakes, but these active safety measures such as automated emergency braking that will apply the brakes if the driver is not paying attention. You may have noticed that since these technologies became common, tailgating has become more common. 
people don't maintain safe following distances anymore. They jam right up against the bumper of the car ahead of them, and I think it's because they have come to believe that the car will protect them, that they don't have to exercise caution and due diligence uh, and avoid, uh, you know, avoid potentially slamming into the car in front of them because of that risk that's there. The risk has been hidden, but the risk is still there. I think risk is very healthy if you're aware of it and uh, take judicious risks. Well, and you make a brilliant case in this column that uh, you really you can't have freedom. You can't have authentic liberty without uh, an associating degree of risk that comes with it. That's right. I mean, we're talking about choices, ultimately. Risk is just a, a way of saying choice. You're presented with options, and some may view option A as, quote, riskier than option B. Uh, but if you're denied that choice, you can never learn to negotiate the world. And a a sort of unspoken corollary to that, if you're not making these choices, well, then somebody's making them for you. And we get into this thing that Bastiat talked about, uh, you know, this idea that somehow people who are in the government are a different species, and they have uh, greater intelligence and more wisdom than we do. But it's it's absurd. They're just people like we are, and their judgment isn't superior. And one doesn't even have to point out examples of that. It's obvious that their judgment is just as flawed as ours. And I'd rather make a mistake based on my own judgment and learn from it than be denied the opportunity to learn and to grow because some arrogant bureaucrat has decided that he's going to make my life decisions for me. Well, something else you zeroed in on, too, that I think merits some discussion here is the idea that not only can we prevent anything bad from ever happening, but if someone somewhere... um, messes his pants, why we should make everybody else wear diapers. Well, sure. And that's the premise behind this whole thing about the, you know, the the reasonable restrictions on guns that you and I have been talking about the last several weeks. Uh, The idea being that somebody out there does something reckless or criminal with a firearm, and then you and I, who've done nothing and have been responsible, are held responsible for the actions of this other person. And that, I think, is an incredibly pernicious and tyrannical idea. I would agree. And and you also uh, touch on where does the moral authority come from for someone to, to start uh, making uh, these kinds of decisions or, or even worse, bringing state force into the equation to make people do what they want them to do? Sure. There are really two justifications. The one is you're making decisions uh, on behalf of a minor child who hasn't yet attained the age of reason, as they used to call it back in the 18th century, and isn't yet mature enough to make decisions or be held responsible for their decisions. Well, we're adults. We're not children. Uh, and the idea that other parents, people we don't even, other, other people uh, that we don't even know somehow have acquired parental authority over us, can you think of a more obnoxious and offensive doctrine than that? No. <laughs> it's, well, I can think of one, that, which is the next alternative, <laughs> which is that we are their property, which is what they're mm. asserting. You know, you, you make decisions for your dog, your cat, your cattle. You decide what they're going to eat. You decide how big their pen is going to be. Uh, all of those things that you decide uh, for your property. So we're being treated like cattle by these people uh, who are determined to uh, keep us safe for uh, interests of property. They believe they have a property stake in us, and that's even more obnoxious. Well, this is where any statist worth his or her salt is going to say, well, now, Eric, Brian, you guys agreed to the social contract when you were either born or you chose to live wherever you live. You had a really good answer to this in, in the uh, the metaphor of a, of a dinner party to, to illustrate how just because you're in society doesn't mean that society can dictate everything you need to do. Well, 
Well, yeah, that's right. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit. There's this obnoxious notion, uh, and I use that word because I think it fits, of implied consent. In a court of law, uh, if, if somebody is going to try to hold you to a contract, they have to produce the contract that you have affixed your signature to, and that is the only way, legally speaking, and in contract law, uh, that you can give your consent. This idea that you happen to have been born in a certain place, and that fact somehow uh, means that you have consented to be governed is is is, is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's it's a, it's a vile and despicable doctrine. Uh, unless you have voluntarily agreed to something without somebody putting a gun to your head, like Luca Brasi in, in The Godfather, uh, who makes you an offer you can't refuse, uh, you have not given your consent. And for somebody to claim that you have is a usurpation of your consent. Well, now, to get down to the society thing, people often talk about, well, society has a right to make sure that you don't do X or Y. Well, there is no such thing as society per se. It's just that all that means is you and I and everybody else who happens to be living in a given area that interact with one another. Society isn't a corporeal entity. It's not a living being. And things that are not alive can't have rights. Only individual people have rights. And uh, there is no superior entity to the individual that has more rights that can countermand the rights of the individual. Well, this is something you're seeing play out right now in um, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where a handful of politicians, based on a few voters saying this is our mandate to uh, take away, you know, certain rights pertaining to the right to keep and bear arms. Sure, and it's a fallacy that people really need to not allow passing you know, to pass without without it having been examined. Uh, we hear a lot about representation and democracy, well, you have to really critically analyze it and, and try and think about exactly what are they talking about. And what we're really talking about here is that old, uh, that old joke about three wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, right? Right. Now, we're going to have to break here in just under a minute, but um, Eric, when we come back, let's talk about the article that actually started this discussion in the first place. Give us a preview about uh, paper mache cars. Well, sure. Uh, there's this odd juxtaposition of the fact that we've got extremely crashworthy cars that are also extraordinarily fragile and easily to be easily damaged. Okay, and uh, that that almost sounds like a uh, you know a, a contradiction in terms, but uh, I'm willing yep. I'm willing to hear you out on this. We'll take a very quick break. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. If you haven't been to his website yet, I strongly recommend go check it out. You will find hours and hours of fantastic reading, and if you like what you read, consider supporting his sponsors. Let them know that uh, you appreciate the job he's doing. We'll be back right after these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, in the last segment, we talked a little bit about the dignity of risk. We're going to spend some time talking about paper mache cars, which apparently is the column that started the whole uh, discussion on the dignity of risk. Uh, You had mentioned as we went to break that uh, there's kind of a conundrum here. Uh, Cars are safer in many respects than they were before. Yeah. They're also more fragile. Help, Help me understand that. Well, 
I, I would say they're more crashworthy. I don't, uh, I don't believe that they're necessarily safer for a variety of reasons, but okay. they're without question more crashworthy. Crashworthy meaning that they can uh, hit uh, a fixed impact or fi- a barrier in government impact testing and, and come out of it with uh, uh, a certain amount of damage that the government finds uh, acceptable. So in other words, they're capable of passing crash tests is what I'm trying to say. Sorry for the, the garbled delivery of that. Um, So their underlying structure is very sturdy in order for them to be able to pass these crash tests. But structure adds weight to a vehicle. So enter the problem. We have these crashworthiness standards on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we've got all of these miles per gallon fuel economy standards, which you and I have talked about many times in the past. And the enemy of good gas mileage is, duh, drumroll, weight right? Mm -hmm. So in order to cut the weight that's been added to the car to make it pass these crash tests, the manufacturers have resorted to using incredibly thin gauge metal for the exterior body panels, if they're even using metal anymore at all. A lot of cars now have plastic composite panels, and almost every car has a plastic, an entirely plastic front and rear clip on it. And these parts are so fragile and flimsy, like the hood, for example. You can lift the hood up of almost any new car, and a reasonably strong man, and I'm not exaggerating, exaggerating could bend it in half with his bare hands. So yeah. you can imagine what happens when you get into a very minor impact, you know, the sort of thing you're just kind of schlepping in traffic back and forth, and you glance away for a minute, the car ahead stops, and you bump into him at five miles an hour. Uh, you know, back in the day, 30 years ago, that would be no big deal at all. You might have to get out some uh, chrome polish and polish out the fender a little bit, but generally speaking, very minimal damage. Well, an impact like that today with a modern car can cost thousands, can cause thousands of dollars worth of damage uh, to all of these external body panels of the car. It's, it's been a while since I have been to a body shop, but, but I agree with what you're saying. And, and it's, I don't know, it's been maybe five or six years, some kid backing out of a parking space creased the side of my Honda with, with his bumper. And you would think, okay, yep. well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. No. I mean, I'm glad insurance, you know, picked up the cost. But holy cow, it was, uh, you know, it was a couple thousand bucks to fix a crease in the yep. side of my car. That's right, because generally these parts are not repairable. Like, for example, the, 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 the plastic front and rear clips of these cars, they're, t- they're designed to just tear away, and when they get a rip in them, they throw them away. You have to throw away that whole front clip and all of the plastic that's associated with it, including the grill, uh, and oftentimes, too, those expensive headlight assemblies, which you and I have talked about before. Uh, and it's a huge, big deal. Um, I actually have a, a personal example, a, a real-life test. I had um, previously owned a 1998 Nissan Frontier. I currently own a 2002 Nissan Frontier. They're basically the same vehicle with one difference. My O2 has the plastic front end and the headlight assemblies, whereas the 98 still had a chrome metal exterior bumper and glass sealed beam headlights. Well, I live out here in the country. Deer are a constant hazard. I managed to hit a deer with both the trucks in, in, in essentially the same place. With the 98, I tied a come-along to a big tree, and I put the truck in reverse, and I pulled the bumper back out, and I had to replace one $25 sealed beam headlight, and that was it. Wow. When I hit the deer in, in the O2, it took out the whole front end. I had, the, I had to have the whole front end replaced and the headlight assembly, and it was like $2,200 worth of damage at the body shop. Yeah, I think when you said the term headlight assembly, I, I, I instinctively felt a few people wince, like, oh, because they've had to replace them. It's not cheap anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a simple no. fix. 
No, no, they're, they're very vehicle-specific. The old seal beam headlights were very generic. Uh, they came in that square shape or that round shape, and a given headlight would fit you know, a dozen different makes and models of cars. So they were very inexpensive, whereas these, these headlight assemblies are usually very specific to that particular car and to that particular year sometimes. So, you know, the next year or the year prior might have had a different assembly, and uh, something that used to cost $25 now can cost, you know, three, four, five hundred $500. And on some of the higher-end cars, and this is not an exaggeration, a headlight assembly can cost $1,000 or more. Wow. You know, it, it seems like we always come back in some way, shape, or form to the fact that there, there are these federal guidelines, these regulatory mandates that are placed on automobile manufacturers. Do you ever see that, uh, that heavy boot coming off the necks of the auto manufacturers, or is it something that we're just going to have to learn to live with? I, I think it's got to end at some point simply because uh, we're going to hit an economic wall, uh, by which I mean uh, uh, there is a limit to what people can uh, afford to spend for all of this safety stuff that's decreed by government bureaucrats who aren't the ones who have to pay for it, right? Uh, the average new car, the average new car, family cars, cars like uh, Honda Accords, Toyota Camrys, they routinely transact now for more than $30,000 because, of, you know, to a large degree because of all of this stuff. And the average family income in this country, I think, is around $60,000. So right now the average car is costing the average family half of its annual income. That's not sustainable. No. No. And yet, uh, you know, the bureaucrats, you know, they, in the name of safety, they're, they're, that's their justification. I don't see them giving up anytime soon. Uh, I don't either. Um, I do my best to in addition to pointing out these economic issues, also point out another issue, and that is that these people are making life and death decisions for us. And I can, again, to use the term, think of a, a, a few doctrines that are more obnoxious than that. The safety mandates, uh, they're not universally perfect, and oftentimes uh, they end up having results that can hurt us. A very good example of that being these, the airbag mandate. Yeah, an airbag can save your life, your life. But the fact is, an airbag can also hurt you, and it can also kill you. Uh, and that's that's when they work. And when they don't work, you know, you've probably heard about this Takata airbag scandal, where uh, literally hundreds of thousands of cars in America are driving around with defective airbags that can explode in the driver's face like a claymore mine, and spray their face with shrapnel and potentially maim them for life or even kill them. And this is a decision that's been taken away from us by people we don't even know. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm an optimist at heart, and so there's a part of me that says somewhere at the end of this dark tunnel, uh, we're going to come out into the light, and who knows, maybe maybe there will be a, a return to common sense, and maybe even a return to to freedom being the norm rather than the exception. Sure, I, you know, I look to the example of the old Soviet Union. You and I are old enough to remember the Soviet Union, yep. and and if we went back to the 80s, uh, uh, nobody could have imagined that the Soviet Union would cease to exist by, what was it, 1989-1990. You know, it, it was this just incredible monolith that seemed to be perpetual. And a few years later, it's gone. And now, for the average person who lives in Russia, you know, I'm not trying to uh, make the case that Vladimir Putin is a, a libertarian saint, <laughs> but he's no Stalin. And life for the average Russian right now is, is materially far better. They have far more freedom now than they enjoyed under the old Soviet Union. So if it can happen in Soviet Russia, certainly it can happen here, too. Eric, we're down to about a minute here before we have to wrap things up. Um, how can my listeners help you with the work that you do? 
Is there is there a way that well, uh, that they can can help further your cause? Sure, there's two ways. Uh, one way, of course, is that, you know they can support the website directly. We've got a little button on the main page and underneath most of the articles. Uh, if people would like to just directly support the site, they can do that through PayPal or they can do that through the mail. And if they do that, they'll get a little uh, magnet sticker or coaster from me as an expression of thanks. And the other thing that they can do is to support our advertisers, including Valentine One Radar Detectors um, and uh, uh, Amsoil, uh, which which sells really top shelf uh, lubricants for your vehicle. Uh, by supporting our advertisers, you support the site as well. All right. Mental note to myself. Be sure to ask Eric about Amsoil next time we talk. I've got a Mustang with lots yeah, of miles. And, it's, it's the good stuff. <laughs> and I think, I think I'm ready to, to commit to, to a, an Amsoil relationship. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest again. I wish you all the I'll best. Up, Brian. Look forward to talking with you again next week. Yep, stay warm. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Again, I'm going to ask you to please hold your calls for the next hour. But uh, let's uh, let's jump in with a couple of other topics. Always love visiting with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Um, I don't know if you uh, if if you're if you're a political junkie, you probably were following pretty closely the uh, Iowa caucuses yesterday, which I can't believe we're already in February. I can't believe the Iowa caucuses have come and gone. Here comes the New Hampshire primary. But uh, it definitely feels like the election year is coming up to speed. And and with it, uh, of course, there are going to be some interesting developments. But, uh, wow, what the heck happened? I mean, a lot of people were watching mainly to see what is going to happen on the Democratic uh, Party's front. You know, who's going to emerge as the front runner? And I think uh, despite all of the touting of, well, Joe Biden is the only one who could possibly beat uh, Donald Trump come November. I believe Bernie Sanders. I mean, a guy who has I I don't know if he's come out as openly communist. He's definitely openly socialist. But uh, Bernie Sanders, last I heard, seemed to have the, the edge but there's so much disarray, nobody knows. And apparently they use some kind of a new app to, to get the, uh, the caucus uh, results from the, the precincts over to, to the state. And uh, anyway, nobody can tell. So you had a whole bunch of Democratic hopefuls all declaring victory. And, and <laughs> it's, it's a huge mess. The, the incompetence is staggering. By the way, I'm not just laying this at the feet of the Democrats, okay? It's not like, you know, they're the only ones who, who see, they have a plan. I have a plan for everything that, uh, that somehow fails and and yet we're still expected to give them the, the credibility as if, you know, they were God himself. You know, I can run this thing. I know I know better than you do how to run your life. I wish more people could at least, you know, keep that sense of skepticism when, when they see things like what we saw play out in Iowa yesterday. At this point, I still don't even know who is is likely, you know, the the front runner. And I guess I'd maybe maybe I don't even care. I guess if we had to say there was a winner yesterday, probably it was Donald Trump. Pat Buchanan writes about the failed coup of a failing establishment. And I'm going to segue into this from the Iowa caucuses because it's just another list of things that are going wrong for the establishment. And it may sound like I'm gloating, but um, in reality, I'm just looking back at it going, wow, you know, where does it end? Because I, I don't know. 
And I, and, and I foresee the desperation that we're seeing right now becoming absolutely crazy by the time election time rolls around. I mean, listen to what Pat Buchanan has to say. He says it's been a really bad few days for the establishment. Really bad. In a 51 to 49 vote, the Senate refused to call witnesses in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump and agreed to end the trial Wednesday with a near certain majority vote to acquit the president of all charges. As weekend polls show socialist Bernie Sanders surging into the lead for the nomination in the states of Iowa, New Hampshire and California, the sense of panic among Democratic Party elites is palpable. Pat Buchanan says former Secretary of State and Joe Biden's surrogate John Kerry was overheard Sunday at a Des Moines hotel talking of the possibility of Bernie Sanders taking down the Democratic Party, down whole. Well, Tuesday, today, Trump takes his nationally televised victory lap in the U.S. Capitol with his State of the Union address as triumphant Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and a humiliated Speaker Nancy Pelosi sit silently side by side behind him. Now, Democrats may declare the Trump impeachment a victory for righteousness, but the anger and outrage, the moans and groans now coming off the editorial and op-ed pages and cable TV suggest the media know otherwise. History, we are told, will vindicate what Pelosi and the Democrats did and stain forever the Republican Party for voting to acquit. To which Pat Buchanan Buchanan says, perhaps, but only if some future Howard Zinn is the one writing the history. Reality? The impeachment of Trump was attempted was an attempted and failed coup that not a single Republican supported. Only Democrats in the House and their Senate caucus. The impeachment of Trump was an exercise in pure partisanship and itself an abuse of power. What was the heart of the Democrats case to remove Trump? Trump failed to invite Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to the White House and held up military aid to Kiev. Kiev for several months to get Zelensky to hold a press conference to announce that Kiev was looking into how Hunter Biden got on the board of a corrupt energy company at a retainer of $83,000 a month while his father was the chief international monitor of corruption in Ukraine. The specific indictment, Trump's suspension of military aid imperiled, quote, our national security by denying arms to an ally who was fighting the Russians over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Okay, and what was the outcome of it all? Well, Zelensky got his meeting with the president. He got the military aid in September. He did not hold the press conference requested. He did not announce an investigation of the Bidens. No harm, no foul. So Buchanan asks, how did President Obama handle Ukraine? After Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea and intervened to protect pro-Russian secessionists in the Donbass, Obama's White House restricted U.S. lethal military aid to Kiev and provided blankets and meals ready to eat. What punishment did House and Senate Democrats and anti-Trump media demand for the pause in sending weapons to Ukraine? Capital punishment, a political death penalty. Democrats demanded the Republican, that a Republican Senate overturn the election of 2016, make Trump the first president ever impeached and removed, and then ensure that the American people could never vote for him again. Nancy Pelosi's House and the Democratic minority in the Senate were demanding that a Republican Senate do their dirty work and keep Trump off the ballot in 2020, lest he win a second term. For four years, elements of the liberal establishment in the media, deep state, and major institutions have sought to destroy Trump. First, they aimed to smear him and prevent his election, then to overturn it as having been orchestrated by the Kremlin, and then to impeach and remove him, and then to block him from running again. 
the damage they have inflicted upon our country's institutions is serious. Pat Buchanan says U.S. intelligence agencies are being investigated by U.S. Attorney John Durham for their role in instigating an investigation of a U.S. presidential campaign. The FBI has been discredited by exposure of a conspiracy of top-level agents to spy on Trump's campaign. The media, by endlessly echoing unproven claims that Trump was a stooge of the Kremlin, discredited themselves to a degree unknown since the yellow press prostituted itself to get us into war with Spain. Media claims to be unbiased pursuers of truth have suffered not only from Trump's attacks, but from their own biased and bigoted coverage and commentary. Now, Pat Buchanan says the NSC and State Department have been exposed as employing individuals with an exaggerated view of their role in the origination and execution of foreign policy. Disloyalty and animosity toward the chief executive appear to permeate the upper echelons of the deep state. And he says, not in our lifetime have the institutions of government and the establishment been held in lower regard. Almost all now concede we have become an us versus them nation. How we accomplish great things again, giving our seemingly unbridgeable differences, remains a mystery. Okay, I don't know if you like or hate Pat Buchanan, agree or disagree. I think the guy makes some pretty decent points worth considering. Certainly his grasp of the history of what's going on there, um, I, I think is, is on a par with anybody that I can think of, and, and perhaps better than most. So here's kind of a... a strange, maybe even sideways question for you. How much of this should occupy your day-to-day thinking? And I don't have a, a, a pat answer for you. Well, it should be, you know, 43.1%. That's, that's all the more you should think of it. I think this is something each one of us has to come to individually. I just find myself increasingly impressed by the people I encounter who confess sometimes, you know, quietly, like they're almost a little bit ashamed of it, that, you know what, I stopped paying attention to the media years ago. I don't watch the news. I don't read the papers. I I don't really care so much about what they're saying. And it's not the same thing as saying, I prefer to be uninformed, because frankly, if you're relying on the media to keep you informed, (laughs) I got some bad news for you. It's uh, it's not working. It's not. But my point is simply this. For all the focus that we have on the impeachment proceedings, upon the State of the Union, upon, you know, all the different intrigue coming out of Washington, D.C. Look, it's a 24-7 passion play. It is melodrama around the clock. And, and what is it for? What purpose does it serve? I know I'm a little bit cynical. But to me, the the only possible answer that I can see is all of this acting, all of this outrage, all of the, the contrived anger and angst over, you know, who's done what or who tweeted what comes down to it's it's grappling for power, seeking advantage in any way that they can. Do you know the president tweeted thanks to Kansas City, Kansas? <laughs> you know, it's 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 one thing to sincerely want to correct someone who is off course and it's another thing to just simply, you know, come unglued on them anytime you think you found an opening. Politics seems to bring that out in people. And I can't tell you, you know, what's what's the correct percentage of, you know, the day that you should spend thinking about such things. I just know if something brings more negativity than positivity into my life, I feel like the wiser choice is to limit it, if not eliminate it, to the best of my ability. Your mileage may vary. 
And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm going to open up the phone lines next hour. So get your dialing fingers limbered up, and we'll uh, we'll have some conversation then. As we went to break in the last segment, um, I was trying to explain why I choose to limit how much I focus on politics. And, you know, it's I know some would say, well, Brian, what you're describing is just simply an avoidance technique that that keeps you from, you know, uh, being emotionally invested in what's happening. You know what? That may be the case, but it's a conscious choice. And, and the degree to which I get involved in politics typically comes down to I want to, as best I can, help people understand what the real dynamic is. And I've said this for many years. I love it when I find somebody who can back up what I'm trying to say. And usually they say it much better than I can. But the battle isn't right versus left. It's not Democrat versus Republican. It's not progressive versus conservative. It's statism versus the individual. And any time I can help someone at least consider, maybe this is the, the real divide that we should be concerned with. I feel like that's, that's a better use of my time and my talents. Daniel Mitchell wrote a column, I guess it was a little uh, little less than a year ago. This was for the Foundation for Economic Education, about how the battle isn't right versus left. It's statism versus individualism. Here's what he says. He says, I've written about how totalitarian ideologies such as communism and Nazism have a lot in common. Both subordinate the individual to the state and both give the state power over the economy. Oh, and both slaughter millions of people. Now, he says the battle is not right versus left. It's statism versus individualism. But he says, let's look at some writings on this issue. And he has some terrific quotes here. He says, we start with an article by Bradley Berzer, published by Intellectual Takeout. He worries that totalitarianism on the left is making a comeback. In 1936, Berzer says you had three choices, national socialism, international socialism, or dignity. In 2018, he says we find ourselves in similar circumstances. Why is this happening now? First, we have scholars, or we scholars rather, have failed to convince the public of just how wicked all forms of communism were and remain. Almost all historians ignore the most salient fact of the 20th century, that governments murdered more than 200 million innocents, the largest massacre in the history of the world. Terror reigned in the killing fields, the Holocaust camps, and the gulags. Second, an entire generation has grown up never knowing such things as Soviet gulags or even the Berlin Wall. Most younger defenders of communism buy into the oldest propaganda line of the left that real communism has never been tried. Berger also explains that fascism and socialism are two sides of the same coin. He says that the National Socialists embrace socialism is factually accurate. They did nationalize very vital industry in Germany, even if by outright intimidation rather than through the law. In his personal diaries, Joseph Goebbels wrote in late 1925, it would be better for us to end our existence under Bolshevism than to endure slavery under capitalism. Only a few months later, he continued, I think it is terrible that we and the communists are bashing in each other's heads. Bradley Berzer says, whatever the state of the rivalry between the two camps, Goebbels claimed the two allies, the two forces rather, should ally and conquer. The Italian fascists had even closer ties to the Marxists, with Mussolini having begun his career as a Marxist publicist and writer. A few Italian fascists even held positions in the Comintern. Next, Richard Mason makes similar points in a piece he wrote for the Foundation for Economic Education. He says, how do we react to the hammer and sickle? 
I don't have to write an article explaining the millions of deaths that occurred at the hands of the communist regimes like the Holocaust, the gulags of the Soviet Union and the killing fields of Cambodia are widely known. Yet journalists in the UK openly and proudly advocate communism. Statues of Karl Marx are erected. There's no way, no justifiable way a fascist could argue that wasn't real Nazism. But the same is not true for communism. Since Karl Marx never implemented communism himself, leaders of communist states always have that get-out-of-jail-free card. Any shortcomings, tragedies, or crises a communist regime faces can always be blamed on a misapplication of Marx's infallible roadmap. The communist ideology in its purest form might be separated from its implementations, but at what point does its awful track record discredit any attempts to advocate it? The history of communism is as bloodstained as that of Nazism, much more so, actually, and it's time we treated it as such. Now, here Daniel J. Mitchell says, Amen. And he says, I've weighed in on that issue. And he says, I strongly recommend what Jeff Jacoby wrote on the issue as well. He's got some links to it. You can find them when I link this article in the show notes in the podcast on LovingLiberty.net. He also says, Sheldon Richmond expands on this theme. Here's what Sheldon Richmond says. Fascism is socialism with a capitalist veneer. The word derives from fasces, the Roman symbol of collectivism and power, a tied bundle of rods with a protruding axe. Whereas socialism sought totalitarian control of a society's economic processes through direct state operation of the means of production, fascism sought that control indirectly through domination of nominally private owners. Where socialism abolished all market relations outright, fascism left the appearance of market relations while planning all economic activities. Where socialism abolished money and prices, fascism controlled the monetary system and set all prices and wages politically. And then Richmond goes on to explain the vast gulf between capitalism and fascist economics. Entrepreneurship was abolished. State ministries rather than consumers determined what was produced and under what conditions. Fascism is to be distinguished from interventionism or the mixed economy. Interventionism seeks to guide the market process, not eliminate it as fascism did. Under fascism, the state, through official cartels, controlled all aspects of manufacturing, commerce, finance, and agriculture. Planning boards set product lines, production levels, prices, wages, working conditions, and even the size of firms. Licensing was ubiquitous. No economic activity could be undertaken without government permission. Excess incomes had to be surrendered as taxes or loans. And since government policy aimed at autarky or national self-sufficiency, protectionism was necessary. Imports were barred or strictly controlled. Fascist governments also undertook massive public works projects financed by steep taxes, borrowing, and fiat money creation. Now, Daniel Mitchell says these are not new observations. In fact, he says here's what Ludwig von Mises wrote on the topic back in the 1940s. The Marxians have resorted to... to polylogism because they could not refute the, logi- the logical method, biological methods, the theories developed by bourgeoisie economics, or the inferences drawn from these theories demonstrating the impracticality of socialism. As they could not rationally demonstrate the soundness of their own ideas or the unsoundness of their adversaries' ideas, they denounced the accepted logical methods. The German nationalists had to face precisely the same problem as the Marxians. They also could neither demonstrate the correctness of their own statements nor disprove the theories of economics and praxeology. Thus, they took shelter under the roof of polylogism prepared for them by the Marxians. 
Of course, they concocted their own brand of polylogism. Neither Marxian nor Nazi polylogism ever went further than to declare the logical structure of the mind is different with various classes or races. Polylogism is not a philosophy or an epistemological theory. It's an attitude of narrow-minded fanatics. Now, as Daniel Mitchell says, all those fanatics are motivated by hate. The Nazis hate people of different races and religions. The Marxists hate people of different incomes and classes. Given the uh, various articles cited above, he says this meme from the Matrix is spot on. And there's a picture of Morpheus saying, what if I told you fascism, Nazism, socialism and communism are all just variations of collectivism? It's true. And this is why when someone starts talking about, you know, if they're if they're standing up for freedom and one of the things they say is, look, I'm against collectivism in all of its forms. I'm like, OK, you've got my attention. Because you're not just hyper focused on, you know, I'm here to fight the Nazis. I'm here to fight the fascists. I'm here to fight socialists. I want to fight collectivism, which comes at the expense of the rights of the individual. As Daniel Mitchell says, we now know what happens when someone learns about the common characteristics of statist ideologies. The Daily Caller has a report of an, on a student who got very upset after learning that the National Socialist Workers' Party was, yes, socialist. Social justice warrior and history major Shelby Shoup was arrested for throwing chocolate milk at a fellow student and college Republican table at, uh, F- at Florida State University while saying Nazis weren't socialists. She's been charred, charged rather with battery. It's a marvelous article, but I'll wrap it up with this. If you can't make the distinction between the collective and the individual, that's probably the best place to start building your understanding. Why is it so essential that the rights of the individual be held as as sacred and be protected? Why is it so essential that the collective not be given power to abridge the rights of the individual based on just having a sheer, you know, a mere majority or just the, the, the force of numbers or even the might to do as they wish? These are the kind of questions that will make you a better political thinker, and they will also help you vote with much better discrimination as to who really stands for freedom versus who doesn't. Stick around. Hour two is on the way next. Next. 